The House is in recess for the next two weeks and will not return until Tuesday, June 7th. The Senate will return tomorrow and stay in session through Thursday before taking its 10-day break for the Memorial Day holiday. Last week in the House, the House came back to work on Monday and took up and passed three bills under suspension of the rules. On Tuesday, the House took up and passed the rule governing floor consideration of H.R. 6531, the Targeting Resources to Communities in Need Act, H.R. 7309, the Workforce Innovation and Opportunity Act of 2022, and S. 2938 to rename a federal courthouse and building. After passing the rule, the House took up amendments to H.R. 7309, the Workforce Innovation and Opportunity Act. After considering four amendments, two of which were adopted and two of which were rejected, the House passed the bill by a vote of 220 to 196. Then the House took up and passed 14 bills under suspension of the rules. On Wednesday, the House took up the rule governing floor consideration of H.R. 350, the Domestic Terrorism Prevention Act, H.R. 7688, the Consumer Fuel Price Gouging Prevention Act, and H.R. 7790, the Infant Formula Supplemental Appropriations Act of 2022. Then the House took up H.R. 6531, the Targeting Resources to Communities in Need Act. That bill passed by a vote of 258 to 165. Then the House took up and passed S. 2938 to rename that federal building and courthouse. Then the House took up and passed six bills under suspension of the rules. Then the House took up and passed by a vote of 231 to 192, H.R. 7790, the Infant Formula Supplemental Appropriations Act of 2022. Then the House took up and passed by a vote of 222 to 203, H.R. 350, the Domestic Terrorism Prevention Act. This is a bill that creates distinct units inside three federal agencies, the Department of Justice, the Department of Homeland Security, and the Federal Bureau of Investigation, to counter threats from domestic terror, especially from white supremacists. Only one House Republican voted for it, Adam Kinzinger of Illinois, who's announced his retirement at the end of the current Congress. Then the House took up and passed seven bills under suspension of the rules. On Thursday, the House took up H.R. 7688, the Consumer Fuel Price Gouging Prevention Act. After agreeing to two amendments, the House passed the amended bill by a vote of 217 to 207, and then they were done. This week in the House, no action. They're in recess. Last week in the Senate, the Senate came back to work on Monday and voted to invoke cloture on the motion to proceed to H.R. 7691, the Ukraine Supplemental Aid Package. On Tuesday, the Senate voted to invoke cloture on the nominations of Jennifer Louise Rochon to be a U.S. District Judge for the Southern District of New York, Trina L. Thompson to be a U.S. District Judge for the Northern District of California, and Sunshine Suzanne Sykes to be a U.S. District Judge for the Central District of California. Then, by voice vote, the Senate confirmed the following people to the following positions. Maria Fabiana Jorge to be U.S. Alternate Executive Director of the Inter-American Development Bank. Jesse A. Laslovich to be U.S. Attorney for the District of Montana. Rachel L. Crow to be U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of Illinois. Alexander M. M. Ubales to be U.S. Attorney for the District of New Mexico. And S. Lane Tucker to be U.S. Attorney for the District of Alaska. On Wednesday, the Senate voted to confirm the following people to the following positions. Jennifer Louise Rochon to be U.S. District Judge for the Southern District of New York. Barbara A. Leaf to be Assistant Secretary, Near Eastern Affairs in the State Department. She'll be overseeing 
U.S. policy towards Iran, and that revived Iran nuclear deal. Elizabeth Schaaf Watson to be an assistant secretary at the Department of Labor. Trina L. Thompson to be U.S. District Judge for the Northern District of California. Sunshine Suzanne Sykes to be a U.S. District Judge for the Central District of California. And Christopher Lohman to be Assistant Secretary for Sustainment at the Department of Defense. Then by voice vote, the Senate confirmed the following people to the following positions. Chester John Culver to be a member of the Board of Directors of the Federal Agriculture Mortgage Corporation. Carol Annette Petsonk to be Assistant Secretary at the Department of Transportation. William Brodsky to be Director of the Securities Investor Protection Corporation for a term expiring December 31, 2023 and Bridget A. Bank to be U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine. That last one, Bridget Bank to be U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine, is an important one. We haven't had an ambassador in Ukraine since 2019. On Thursday, the Senate voted to invoke cloture on and then to pass H.R. 7691, the Ukraine Supplemental Aid Package. We'll talk more about that in a moment. Then by a vote a vote of 48 to 52, the Senate failed to invoke cloture on S-4008, the Small Business COVID Relief Act of 2022. Then the Senate voted to invoke cloture on the nomination of Stephanie Dawkins Davis to be a U.S. Circuit Judge for the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals. Then by voice vote, the Senate voted to confirm the following people to the following positions. Rebecca Eliza Gonzalez to be Director of the Office of Foreign Missions at the U.S. Department of State. Flor Romero to be a member of the Board of Directors of the Corporation for National and Community Service for a term expiring December 1, 2025. Christine M. Kim to be a member of the National Council on the Humanities for a term expiring January 26, 2026. And Karen Ann Stout to be a member of the National Council on the Humanities for a term expiring January 26, 2026. And then they were done. This week in the Senate, they'll come back to work Tuesday with the first vote set for 2.30 p.m. At that time, the Senate will proceed to two roll call votes. The first will be a vote to confirm Stephanie Dawkins Davis to be a circuit judge for the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals. The second will be a vote to invoke cloture on the nomination of Dara Lindebaum to be a member of the Federal Election Commission for a term expiring April 30, 2027. On Tuesday, I expect Majority Leader Schumer to file cloture on a motion to proceed to the Domestic Terrorism Prevention Act. That would set up a vote Thursday. Remember that bill passed the House with just one Republican vote. I don't expect it will garner any more Republican votes in the Senate. Even if it does, it certainly won't earn 10 Republican votes, so this bill is dead. Then, based on the Majority Leader's cloture filings, I anticipate the Senate will spend much of the rest of the week on the following nominations. Evelyn Patton to be a U.S. District Judge for the District of New Jersey. Charlotte M. Sweeney to be a U.S. District Judge for the District of Colorado. Nina Morrison to be a U.S. District Judge for the Eastern District of New York. Sandra L. Thompson to be Director of the Federal Housing Finance Agency for a term of five years. Henry Christopher Frey to be Assistant Administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency. Lisa M. Gomez to be an Assistant Secretary at the Department of Labor. Shavonda J. Jacobs-Young to be Undersecretary for Research, Education, and Economics at the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Amy Lloyd, to be Assistant Secretary in the Career, Technical, and Adult Education section of the Department of Education. Kenneth L. Weinstein, to be Undersecretary for Intelligence and Analysis at the Department of Homeland Security. Todd M. Harper, to be a member of the National Credit Union Administration Board for a term expiring April 10, 2027. That's a reappointment. 
Samuel R. Bagenstos to be general counsel at the Department of Health and Human Services, Stephen Hui to be a U.S. District Judge for the Southern District of California, and Shalanda H. Baker to be Director for Minority Economic Impact at the Department of Energy. Who knew they even had a Director of Minority Economic Impact at the Department of Energy? Now to COVID funding. We're still waiting. It's been seven weeks since a deal was struck to move a $10 billion COVID funding bill, but Majority Leader Schumer still has not agreed to allow a vote on an amendment to keep Title 42 in place. Without that amendment vote, he can't get the 10 Republican votes he needs to move the bill. Today was the day that Title 42 was to have been lifted, but given that a federal judge has now ruled that the Biden administration erred and Title 42 must remain in place, at least while the case is being litigated, perhaps Majority Leader Schumer won't view that amendment vote as the thing to be feared that he has for the last seven weeks. Perhaps he'll allow the Senate to vote on that amendment. Stay tuned. There may be action on this front this week. Now to census overcounts. On Thursday, the United States Census Bureau released results from its post-2020 enumeration survey, which showed population undercounts and overcounts. For 36 states and the District of Columbia, the Census Bureau said the numbers did not show a statistically significant undercount or overcount. But in 14 other states, they got the number wrong. There were undercounts in six states and overcounts in eight. The states where the Census Bureau believes there were undercounts are Arkansas, Florida, Illinois, Mississippi, Tennessee, and Texas. That is five of those six states where undercounts took place are generally considered red states. The states where the Census Bureau believes there were overcounts are Delaware, Hawaii, Massachusetts, Minnesota, New York, Ohio, Rhode Island, and Utah. Six of these eight are generally considered blue states. So, according to the Census Bureau, they overcounted blue states and undercounted red states. Anticipating your questions, no, there's nothing that can be done to change the reapportionment that took place last year. We're stuck with that apportionment until the next census takes place in 2030. Now to the Durham probe continued. The trial of Michael Sussman, the Hillary Clinton for president campaign attorney accused by special counsel John Durham of lying to the FBI, began one week ago with jury selection. To give you an example of how biased the jury pools are in the District of Columbia, one of the jurors acknowledged to the court on Thursday that she had become aware just the night before, after the trial had already started, that her daughter was on a high school crew team with the defendant's daughter. The prosecution asked to have her excused from her service on the jury, but the judge refused, saying there was a three-year age difference between the two girls, so they probably weren't particularly close. And noting that the juror herself had brought the information to the court's attention, indicating in the judge's mind that the juror was aware of her responsibilities to be impartial and was taking those responsibilities seriously. By the way, the judge insisted on keeping five alternate jurors, not the two alternates that would normally be kept for a trial of this expected length. I think he's worried about the possibility of COVID knocking out a few of his jurors. By midweek, the prosecution team had put in the witness box James Baker, the former FBI general counsel Sussman had gone to see with the Clinton campaign's information about Trump. Baker testified that he had believed Sussman when Sussman told him Sussman was coming to see him as a concerned citizen and not on behalf of any clients. 
The big news of the week came when Clinton campaign manager Robbie Mook, brought in to testify by the defendant, was cross-examined by the prosecution team and acknowledged that Hillary herself was not only aware of but approved the campaign's plan to smear Donald Trump by leaking to the FBI and the media a narrative that said Trump was in cahoots with Russia, despite not being particularly certain of the truth of the charge. To my knowledge, this is the first time that anyone at that senior a level of her 2016 campaign for president has acknowledged that she knew of and approved of the campaign's plan to smear Trump. More on the Disinformation Governance Board. On Wednesday of last week, the Washington Post broke the story of the so-called pause of DHS Disinformation Governance Board. In a story that was itself compiled from disinformation and misinformation, the Post relayed to its readers how the oh-so-noble Biden administration effort to save American citizens from the deliberate lies told by the Russian government and the leaders of the Mexican drug cartels was foiled by the vicious lies and personal smears circulated by crazy American right-wingers. Apparently, what the editors of the Washington Post consider disinformation and misinformation is what you and I might call truth. For example, it is true that the woman DHS chose to serve as the executive director of the Disinformation Governance Board, Nina Jankowitz, had dismissed the contents of Hunter Biden's laptop as the product of Russian disinformation. And it is true that she pushed the Russia hoax as valid. Jankowitz was given the opportunity of staying or leaving. After thinking about it for a day, ultimately, she chose to resign her position. Then the second shoe dropped. The DGB was truly was not being totally shut down. It was merely being paused. Two national security establishment types, former Bush administration DHS Secretary Michael Chertoff and former Bill Clinton administration Deputy Attorney General Jamie Gorelick, were being tasked to undertake a review of the DGB from their perches at the Homeland Security Advisory Council. Their mission is to take the next 75 days to review the board and offer recommendations on how DHS can generate public trust surrounding its disinformation efforts. Good luck with that. Now to illegal immigration. As mentioned earlier, in early April, the Biden administration announced that the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention would terminate its use of Title 42 as a means to control the flow of migrants across our southern border. Title 42 was scheduled to be lifted today, May 23rd. But on Friday, Louisiana Federal District Judge Robert R. Summerhays, a Trump appointee, ruled that the Biden administration must keep the Title 42 restrictions in place while a lawsuit filed by 24 states against the Biden administration is resolved. Later that afternoon, the Department of Justice appealed the ruling. The White House said it would keep the restrictions in place while the appeal is being played out. Now to Russia and Ukraine. Russian dictator Vladimir Putin's decision to invade Ukraine continues to backfire. Last week, we talked about the decision taken by the governments of Sweden and Finland to drop their decades-long neutrality and instead join NATO. On Wednesday of last week, the leaders of those two countries traveled to Washington to take a meeting at the White House with President Biden and jointly celebrate their applications for membership in NATO. Putin is going to be very unhappy when Finland joins NATO because that's going to mean that not only does Russia have a new, much longer border to defend, 
that will add another 830 miles or so of border with a NATO country, as opposed to the current roughly 144-mile-long border Russia shares with Poland. But it also means that the Russian naval port at Murmansk, home of the Russian northern fleet, is now within missile range of NATO territory. Now to the leak of the Dobbs draft ruling fallout edition continued. Tonight will mark the three-week anniversary of the publication of the Politico story revealing that someone inside the Supreme Court had leaked a draft of the majority ruling in the Dobbs abortion case that would overturn the 49-year-old Roe v. Wade decision. Shortly after the story was published, a left-wing group calling itself Ruth Sent Us began organizing protests to take place outside the homes of the conservative Supreme Court justices. I told you last week that Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin and Maryland Governor Larry Hogan, both of whom happened to be Republicans, last week sent a letter to Attorney General Merrick Garland urging him to enforce the federal law that makes it a crime to picket or parade outside the home of a Supreme Court justice. Garland is familiar with laws against picketing or parading. That's one of the laws that's being used by the federal government to prosecute some of the January 6th protesters. But Garland won't enforce that law against protesters outside the homes of Supreme Court justices. This is troubling. I would argue that Supreme Court justices deserve more protection than do members of Congress, not because they're superior to members of Congress, because they're not. They're members of a co-equal branch of government, but because making laws is different from interpreting laws. Making laws, as the Congress does, is inherently political a process that takes into account the push and pull of public pressure. Interpreting laws, on the other hand, is meant to be a totally apolitical process divorced from public pressure. Garland's refusal to engage to, I'm sorry, to enforce that law and worse, merely to have DOJ spokespeople and White House spokespeople repeat the absurd line that everything's cool as long as the protests remain peaceful is infuriating. He's not doing his job. And that's our Washington Report for this week.